And today, our scripture is going to pick up in Genesis chapter 33. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Um, if you grab one of those black hardback Bibles on the way in, you can consider that our gift to you this morning if you don't own a Bible. Um, but we're going to be in Genesis chapter 33. Uh, today is a really, really big day in the life of Jacob in this story because today he's going to meet Esau again. It's going to be a little bit of a uh, family reunion. And uh, this family reunion doesn't come with a green bean casserole. And like uh, your mama's, your grandma's, like uh, uh, her perfume and all of that, you know, or the, the, the deviled eggs at the end and the, and the cellophane and the plastic wrap, all that stuff. Um, this one doesn't come with that. Um, as we've seen over the past number of weeks, Jacob is absolutely terrified of Esau. And uh, so we're going to see three big movements in this chapter. First is going to be the reunion uh, of Jacob and Esau in verses 1 through 11. Second, we're going to see Esau's proposal and then uh, Jacob's final lie in verses 12 through 17. And finally, we're going to see God's promises, a reminder of Jacob's vow, and then the consequences for incomplete obedience. So um, if you've got your Bibles open in Genesis chapter 33, I'm going to start at verse 1, and we'll be reading through verses 1 through 11. This is the very word of God for us this morning, church, and we're going to see Jesus in and through this story. Verse 1. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau is coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. And Leah, with all her children, and Rachel and Joseph, last of all, he, Jacob himself, went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, and they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise, her children, drew near, and they bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I meet? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, just like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Let's stop there for now. Okay, so this scene um, begins with the anticipation of this family reunion. We're left with Jacob last week after he's absolutely fearful, out of his mind. He's and met God, he's called a place, two camps after meeting uh, angels in a place, and then he divides his own peoples, his own family, into two camps because he's afraid that his brother Esau is going to come attack him in the night and like rout his entire family. So he separates the family thinking, well, if, if half my family dies, at least the other half can get away. But what happens is Jacob, instead of being met by Esau, is first met by God. We saw last week that Jacob... After he's alone, he separates himself from his family. He's wrestled by a man throughout the night and through that night of wrestling in the dirt, wrestling 
with this man, at the end of that comes blessing for him. That God actually wounds Jacob in order to heal him, to show him and show him his dependence ultimately on God. And Jacob not only walks away with a wound, but he walks away with a new name. He walks away with the name Israel because he wrestled with God. That's the Jacob that we're left with. At the end of that story, it says that the sun is rising. It's kind of like a a picturesque scene where Jacob's limping kind of out onto this, what could be a battlefield before his brother. He's got a limp. He's got a new name, but he's up to his same old desires, right? He, he looks up and he sees Esau, and, and you think, you know, this being a family reunion, it might have some type of positive connotation. If you grew up going to family reunions like I did, um, it, it was like I said earlier, it was the cellophane, it was a lot of like, you know, to pop the top on the containers that have been sitting there during the sermon. You know, no, you, you went to a, a friend's church that was miles away you met with your family, and some of those family members that you were really excited to see, you hadn't seen them in a long time, but some of them you were not so excited to see. Well, Jacob really gets that emotion because he had been regretting this family reunion, not just for a year, but for 20 years. Because the last time he had saw Esau, Esau was breathing threats of murder. He's going to say, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to murder you. I'm just waiting until dad dies so I can slit your throat, is basically what Esau left him with And so, just imagine showing up to that family reunion with a devil eggs, you know? Not a fun time. Not a fun time. But Jacob, right, he's been dreading this for 20 years, and he looks up, and what does he see? He sees Esau rolling deep with 400 dudes. This is like the Old Testament, like, number for like, hey, y'all, it's an army coming. 400 guys by his side. Seems like that scene, a little bit like that scene from the Avengers movie where everyone's like dead on the battlefield or at least uh, triumphed, uh, been beaten on the battlefield. And you got Captain America with his uh, trusty hammer. He looks up and he sees Thanos, right? And sees all those armies at the end of the, the, the last Avengers movie all coming to him. And he's like, I'm going to do it. America's the greatest. I'm going to do it. You know, that's, that's, that's what you kind of see with Jacob here. He's walking with a limp. He's, you know, he's got a broken shield. He's covered in dirt. But he's headed out to meet Esau anyways. And instead of last time being at the back of the pack, alone, behind everyone, you see Jacob kind of changed here. Where is he? He's out front. He's coming to meet Esau. But never mind that Jacob kind of, he orders his family in order of, you know, most important to least important. We're told that detail as well, right? If the servants' wives and their kids die, at least maybe uh, you know, Rachel and Joseph can get away, and we're just going to kind of let, leave Leah in the middle and see if she can just figure it out. She's scrappy anyways, right? We saw that in the birth war story. See, before his wrestling match with God, Jacob hid at the back of the line behind everyone else, but now he's encountered God, and he's been renamed Israel. He leads the pack. He's not coming dressed in someone else's clothes, trying to hide this time. He doesn't need an entourage. He's finally coming out of hiding to meet brother. And as he walks to meet Esau, what do we see Jacob doing? He's bowing. He bows seven times. This is a really important number. You know, seven is the number, a biblical number for completion. Like he's showing perfect humility, perfect submission before his brother. See, this bowing, Jacob is showing this submission and humility before Esau. But that's not the way this story is supposed to go, right? That's not in alignment with the prophecy that 
Isaac made about Jacob, right? Unwittingly. And back in Genesis 27, 29, we're told that Isaac pronounced this blessing over Jacob. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So now Jacob is bowing before Esau. This is a great reversal, is it not? Esau had all these gifts and or blessings from Jacob. It's almost like Jacob is trying to give him back the blessing that he'd stolen from him, right? Jacob even calls all these gifts, the things he paraded in front of Esau last week, he calls them his blessing before him. Look at verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. But this is the big question. This is the tension that we've been waiting for since all the way back when Jacob ran away from Esau to his uncle Laban. Is Esau and his army going to kill him? The answer is no. Not only does Esau not kill him, but he also runs out and hugs and kisses his estranged brother. They weep together. Can you imagine this relief in Jacob? 20 years of anxiety, 20 years of worry, 20 years of inward pain and fear. He had spent the majority of his life worried about this very moment. God answered his prayer that he prayed last week for deliverance from Esau, but he didn't just answer that prayer. God delivered on so much more. Not only is he delivered, but he is reconciled to his brother. There's a lesson we can learn about reconciliation from this story of Jacob and Esau. In this story, God gives us a beautiful picture of reconciliation. But just because it happens like this between Jacob and Esau does not mean that it will always happen like this in our lives. Maybe you're here this morning, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, and there are people in your life that you are not reconciled to. And you're begging God, if there is a God, to be reconciled to that person. That God would grant you a, a beautiful story of reconciliation like this. Brothers coming together, weeping together. Esau accepting this offering from Jacob. See, some of us want so badly to have a story like that, but instead we have stories of ongoing resentment, anger, and unresolved tension. We're reminded of almost daily. If that's you, know that God isn't holding out on you. Know that God isn't distant from you. He's not far from you. God is with you. Was not God with Jacob when he was with Laban? Was not God going to be with Jacob after this story? With Esau, yes, yes. Some stories end like Jacob and Esau with the happy endings and the Disneyland kind of fanfare at the end, tears and hugs, but some stories don't. When it comes to reconciliation, there must be an acknowledgement and ownership of the wrongdoing for there to be the possibility of reconciliation. Just saying, I'm really sorry if I ever offended you, just won't cut it. See, like Jacob here, although it's not explicitly stated in the text and recorded, through his gifts and through his posture of humility, I think Jacob is owning up to his sin. He's owning up to his wrongdoing. 
And Esau not only embraces his brother, but he accepts his offering. This would not be common practice in that day. If you were an enemy with someone, you did not accept gifts for them, from them. That would be an admission that things were reconciled and were in the past. So what you would do in a, in a story like this is his even acceptance of the gift is Esau saying that things are back to normal. We are reconciled as brothers. But more than just Jacob owning up to his own sin, God had given Esau what seems like this supernatural peace about what Jacob had done to him. I mean, what had happened to Esau after all these years, man? The dude really mellowed out in his old age, you know? We often say this about our grumpy old, you know, relatives, like, yeah, grandpa really, you know, he really mellowed out in his old age. You should have seen him. Esau's kind of the same here. Apparently, he'd experienced his own blessing in his own right. I mean, he shows up with 400 men. He's got his own personal entourage and army. Doing okay, right? But he must have come to peace with what had happened to him. But, see this, that does not mean that he acknowledged that any of that was God's doing. See, notice that Jacob is the one that credits God with reference to his abundance and blessing, whereas Esau is silent about God. And Jacob does that three times. Jacob, who prayed in chapter 32 is to the God of Abraham and to the God of Isaac, does not seem to be the God of Esau. Look back at verse 9 again. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. He calls Jacob brother, but he says, I have enough. Keep what you have for yourself. Notice here, he says, I have enough with no mention of God. And Jacob's response after this is similar. Let's continue in verse 10. Jacob says, no, please, if I've found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Now, here's the kicker. Because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. It seems that Jacob is truly acknowledging that his source of abundance and blessing is God himself. Jacob did not just stir up all of this abundance and blessing for himself. It is a gift of grace from God. See, not only was Jacob fresh off of seeing the face of God in the dark and wrestling with him and receiving blessing and, and lived to see that, he is now seeing the face of Esau, his brother, in the light and lived to tell the tale. Esau, his former enemy breathing threats of murder, coming to meet him with an army, now calls Jacob brother. Again, can you imagine the relief? Could you imagine the, the quelling of fears and anxieties in that? And Esau accepts Jacob's peace offering. At this time, again, that would have not been normal at all. See, back to this idea of the family reunion. At a family reunion, sometimes the best part of a family reunion is the fact that you get to put the saran wrap back on your dishes you need to pop the lid on that container back home. You get to kiss your grandma, and you get to go home, right? You don't get to live there. You don't get to live in that old, dirty church, you know, hut or whatever, you know, like the, uh, what is that place where we all used to eat uh, those, those dinners? What are they called? The fellowship hall. There you go. You know, we don't live in the fellowship hall, right? We get to get in our family van and head back home. But Esau has another idea, right? Esau wants to come spend the night. 
Or just to be, if you had cousins that did this to you at family reunions, Esau is like, I want you to come hang out at my house now. Now that we're good to go, I want you to come back home with me. Let's look ahead to the next section where we're going to see Esau's proposal and Jacob's final lie. Let's look again at verse 12. Then Esau said, let's journey on our way. And I will go ahead of, or look at your footnote down there, along with you. Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and the herds are a care for me. If they are driven too hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I'll lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Let me leave some troops behind here. Let me, but he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth. He built himself a house and made it booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth, which means booths or stalls where you'd put cattle, store your stuff. Jacob, 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 Jacob. Come on, man. We couldn't get like three verses of like Jacob doing something good and being reconciled to his brother without like tricking him again? Jeez. Jacob just can't help himself here. He was good with Esau. Esau had accepted his gifts. The family reunion was in the bag, and it takes him two seconds to get right back to lying and being shady and trying to snake his way out of this thing. See, apparently Esau makes this proposal for he and Jacob to travel back together to the land of Seir, the country where he lives. And that's a problem for Jacob, and he knows it from the start. Where is Jacob supposed to be going? To the promised land. Is Seir there? No, it's south of it. It's not there. A little bit to the, the east of there. Jacob is supposed to be headed to Canaan. The, God, the land that God had promised to his father Isaac and Abraham before him. And then what does Jacob do? Does he let Esau in on this? Is he like, hey man, that's not going to work. You know, can't do that. God has directed me a different way. He, didn't even pull, he couldn't even pull like the God, well, God told me to card here. He just straight up lies to the guy. He starts scheming. He says, Esau... You know, we got all these kids, we've got these weak, feeble little lambs, and if we push them too hard, they're just all going to die, miraculously. One day hard pushing, they're all going to die. It's kind of like me, if I were to run with any of you military guys. Uh, if, our, if you guys were like, okay, let's go, and you'd start it off, I'm like, if I run any more than like, uh, faster than a 10-minute mile pace, I'm just going to die. So you just go on ahead, I'm going to go find a park bench somewhere and try to stretch out my 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 hamstrings, my calves and stuff. That's exactly what Jacob is doing here. That's his exact strategy. You go on ahead. You know, he's going to let old Harry Esau and his 400 bros clocking six-minute miles just run on down the Sierra and he'll meet him down there later. That's exactly what his plan is so that he can run in the opposite direction. Esau offers to leave some guys behind. It's almost like this sweet moment from simple old Esau. Oh. You think that that'd be a good idea? And Jacob's like, no, 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 bro. No, 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 I don't need that. It's okay. Let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. Jake the snake worms his way out of that one as well. Esau leaves in the direction of Seir, 
which is the southwest. And where does Jacob go? The southeast, across the Jordan River. And almost miraculously, he finds himself back in the land, just as God had promised, but having after lied to his brother again. Some commentators argue differently about whether or not Jacob planned to go follow him down to the land of Seir later on, or was he really lying here again? I think the point is abundantly clear and made that clear in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. But Jacob, after Esau left, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place was called Sukkoth. You don't build a house if you're planning on picking it back up and taking it somewhere else. You don't start building booths and stalls for your livestock. He's setting down the home place. He's building the ranch. He is settling down here. He has no plans to make good on his word. He has lied to his brother yet again. There's a lesson to be learned here about boundaries and honesty from this interaction of Esau and Jacob. It's a hard one for me because I think a little bit here in this passage is Jacob not wanting to disappoint his brother yet again. Yeah, I think he's just being snaky and lying to his face as well. But there's something in most of us that doesn't want to disappoint other people. We want to make good on our word. We don't want to disappoint people. We don't want to anger people. And so we'll say things that we don't actually mean. We'll just call them little white lies. And we'll cover over those things and not count them as sin. You and I know that those are really are what we say that they are. They are sin. Maybe you're different. Maybe you love shutting people down. Maybe you love counseling on people, just telling them the straight up truth. Maybe that's your, your spiritual gift, right? It's like <laughs> not being as a Southern and like uh, savvy as I am in my sense of like, I don't want to offend you at all, okay? You're just okay, just letting, telling people the way it is all the time. That is not my gift, okay? See, it's for most folks like me and my namesake Jacob here that we must do the hard thing and risk disappointing others by telling them the truth. If you are uncomfortable with something, it's better that you let them know up front. To be honest and to say things you don't mean is not okay. Don't say things are okay when they're not. Don't say that things are just fine when they really aren't. This is an opportunity, if you are a follower of Jesus, to really live into the reality that what Christ has called us into is a family. You don't lie to your family. Or if you do, you own up to it afterwards. You're like, man, I was stuck in a situation where I was put on the spot, and I said something that I really didn't mean. Will you forgive me? Sorry for that. We've got to own up to those situations. It's not what Jacob does here. See, you see, we're not all perfect. And Lord knows we're going to say things and get it wrong sometimes. But if you do tell someone else a lie, don't call it a white lie and just brush over it. Tell others that thing. We've got to own up to these things because they're going to have so much, they're going to do so much damage in the long run. Jesus will say it like this in Matthew 5:37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. We all know this to be true. These words of Christ ring true right now. We've all had times in our lives where 
where lies have cost us later on down the road. really didn't look like it at the time, but it cost us. Put in a hard spot and giving people that simple yes or no, we knew it was going to cost something for us in that moment. Whether it's our reputation in that moment or just making someone feel bad or disappointing another person. Saying that yes or no would be an act of faith because you know it's going to come with some level of consequence, criticism, of pain. It may be on the behalf of the other person, but in the end, you try to please people and just tell people what they want to hear, it will lead to further hurt because you aren't being honest with yourself or others. See, good boundaries are set in order to bring flourishing and to protect unity and honesty flowing out of it. That's what we're all called to as followers of Jesus. And this is impossible to do without God's work in us. Because in and of ourselves, we're going to be exactly like, Jesus, like Jacob in this. Where he does this time and time again. Where he lies, or he says what people want to hear, or he gives in to fear or anxiety. But what does God do in response to that? Does he just abandon Jacob? No. God, despite Jacob's scheming and lies, he brings Jacob safely back to the promised land, keeping his promise to him. But that doesn't mean Jacob is done with his foolishness for today. Let's see this last section in verses 18 through 20. God's promises, Jacob's vow, and the consequences for incomplete obedience. Verse 18. And Jacob came safely, or peacefully, look at the footnote down there at the bottom, to the city of Shechem which is the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. Verse 20, There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, or God, the God of Israel. Verses 18 through 20 serve as an epilogue on this story, kind of bringing an end to that narrative arc back to when he had escaped from his brother Esau, he had gone into this nameless land, and God had revealed himself to him. He saw the stairway into heaven, and in response to the stairway into heaven and God's promises spoken over Jacob by God himself, Jacob makes a vow. He says this back in Genesis 28, verse 20. Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, here in Genesis 33, Jacob is back in Canaan. He has not starved. He's been blessed by God. He's used some of the money he now uh, has to, to, to buy land, to build a house, and he's even erected an altar, and he named it God, the God of Israel. And don't miss the significance here, right? Things are looking up for Jacob. It looks like since his God has kept his end of the bargain, Jacob finally believes that God is not only the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, but this altar says that this is the God of Jacob, the God of of Israel now. But again, I hate to break it to us again. When things were looking so good, that phrase that they say all the time in real estate, location, 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 has a lot 
to do with this passage here. Jacob is literally about 20 miles uh, from the place where um, God revealed himself, where Jacob erected an altar and named that place Bethel, God's house. And that's where God had directed him to return to, back into the land, back to Bethel, back to the place where God had revealed himself to Jacob. But where is Jacob? Yeah, he's in the land, but he's in Sukkoth. He's stalled out in Shechem. So here, Jacob is celebrating on the two-yard line. He's so close. He's almost there. But as my daddy would say, it, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Close does not count with Yahweh. He demands complete obedience. Jacob isn't where God told him to be, and it doesn't look like he cares. Jacob is chalking this up as a win. And we know that he, he does this. He chalked this up as a win. He builds a house there. He sets up his stalls for his animals there. He's like, this is home. This is the place we're going to stay. He even sets up a new altar and names it God, the God of Israel. And he's like, yep, fulfilled my vow. See, this does not make up for the fact that instead of Jacob pursuing God's house, Bethel, he builds his own house. Instead of giving a tenth to God of everything that he has, what's he doing? He's using his money to protect himself, to protect his own resources, to build his own house, to build stalls and booths for the things that he has so he can accumulate wealth for himself. He's not being a blessing to the nations. He's keeping this stuff for himself. This is incomplete obedience on the part of Jacob and the consequences of staying in Shechem, as we'll see next week, will be dire. Next week, we'll see the story of Dinah, where his staying here in Shechem will result in her shame, her being abused, and eventually the story will culminate in shame for their entire family and will lead them having to leave out of exile of this place again because of what happens in that story. It's going to be horrific. Just, just so you know, if you bring your kids here next week, you're going to hear some stuff. Not a pretty story. This incomplete obedience from Jacob serves to show us the consequences of not having wholehearted obedience and devotion to God. Fast forward to the New Testament, where Paul would say this in Romans 2, 6 through 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth and obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Jacob's righteousness, his best efforts, are as filthy rags before God. They are tainted with sin. They're tainted with his own self-seeking, his own self-interest, his disobedience and his lies. His sin has affected all of it. And unfortunately, church, we are all exactly like Jacob. Now, not only do I share Jacob's name, I share in his fallen nature. Even in my best efforts to worship God, it's all tinged with my own sin. Tim Keller tweeted a couple weeks ago, kind of a controversial tweet that says, even our repentance needs to be repented of often. Because how often do we come before God, we confess our sins, we 
pour out our hearts before him, but there's still this sense of self-interest and self-protection that we need to later then say, God, I, it, that, that part of me was wrong. That part of my heart wasn't fully devoted to you. God, will you forgive me for that as well? This isn't the stuff that makes you feel good or gets printed on coffee mugs. And Lord knows I've never seen Romans 2, 6 through 8 on a coffee mug before. But this is the truth. This is the truth about us. This is the truth about Jacob, about what we need and what he needs. The truth is, in our own power, we are just as hopeless as Jacob is. One step forward, eight steps back. Praise God. Just like in the case of Jacob, God does not leave us to just try harder, do better. God has come to fulfill what God would require of us in our place. Later in Romans 5, Paul would write this in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the good people, the ones who had it all together. No, the ungodly, you and me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. What's the implication there? We're all bad. Who would, buy, who would, who would die for a bad person? But God would. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Many years after Jacob's humbling encounter with his brother that he was thought was there to condemn and hold his sins against him, one of his descendants from the line of Judah, who would be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Messiah, who was God become flesh, he would die. Why will we were weak while we were bad like Jacob. When we didn't deserve it, Jesus died for us. He died for you and he died for me. And just like Jacob, before you and I knew our, we know our sin before God. We know our own lust. We know our own lies. We know our own greed. We know that we shouldn't be forgiven. Like Jacob cowering before Esau in some ways, we might shun before God and try to pacify him with a display of our own strength. Like Jacob's presence or Esau's men, right? Or maybe we try to win him over with our displays of religious behavior. We bow like Jacob and fumble all over ourselves with all kinds of outward displays of trying to say, look God, I'm enough. Look God, you should have compassion on me. But all of that really isn't necessary because God doesn't want our performance. He wants us. God wants us. So much so that Jesus is willing to die for us, the bad, sinful people. And here's why all that showy stuff doesn't matter. As Jesus is crucified on a Roman cross, you know what his last words were? It is finished. All of the work, all of everything that could ever be required of you and I is completed in Christ. The work is done. In the place of disobedient Jacob, you and me, Jesus would accomplish perfect obedience to the will of God required for you and me. And now we stand justified before God and Jesus declares us not guilty. Verse 9 of Romans tells us of chapter 5, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the next verse on the screen. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have been reconciled. We have received reconciliation, like the miraculous reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. It doesn't make sense that Esau would forgive him. We are now reconciled back to God, and it doesn't make sense. We are no longer exiles. We're no longer trying to scratch up our own blessing, paralyzed by the fear of meeting the one that we have wronged, namely God himself. In Christ, we are reconciled to God, saved by his life, and free to rejoice and live free in Jesus. We have been reconciled to God. Not just declared not guilty, but declared, that's my son. That's my daughter, as Esau proclaims Jacob, his brother again, we are now claimed as sons. We are now claimed as daughters. This is good news. I don't know what you're getting out elsewhere outside of these walls, but this is really, really good news. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the offer of the gospel. Believe. Be set free. Of the guilt and shame that you already know it's there. The way that you might see God as just like this condemning judge above you. You may see God as this absent father. Maybe that's the way you see God. God is in pursuit of you. He's after your heart. He wants you. He doesn't want your performance. It's you. He wants your heart. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, here's how I think we're called to live in light of this passage. Don't treat your relationship with God as transactional. I, for many years, treated my relationship with God as transactional, that if I did good, God was cool with me because he was just waiting to crush me like a bug, right? And if I did wrong, God's going to smite me. So I lived in this constant fear of what if I get it wrong? What if I mess up again? No one can know. This makes me retreat in and of myself, just like Jacob. I isolate myself, get alone, I feel like I don't have everything all together, so I just got to hide. This is actually the definition of living in like an abusive relationship. God is not an abusive father. Church, he loves you. He's for you. He's not just putting up with you. He loves you so much that he died for you. See your value. See your worth in Christ. See what God would do for you. And that's the part of the beauty of the gospel that no other religion offers for you. The absolute beauty and glory and mystery that God would die for you. Let that beauty and that confidence propel you to joyful obedience. And this leads us to the final thing. Live like Jesus is your God. Your God. Like Jacob would say earlier that this is the God of Isaac or this is the God of of Abraham, or even the fear of Isaac, now Jacob claims this God as his own. Do you? You think of God as just the God of the, your high school Sunday school teacher that led you to the Lord. Just her God or his God. You just see God as the God of your grandmother. Maybe just the God of your actual father. Maybe your child here. You just think that God is just for daddy and mama. No, God is for you. He is your God. Do you live like that? 
And I think so many times we try to overcomplicate our following of God with so many doodads and apps and books and strategies and whatever. I'm convinced that, and I think the Bible seems to say the same, that what keeps you in the game following God and seeing Him in, it, 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 rightly is majoring on the majors in your walk with Jesus. It's asking yourself, Man, are you reading the Bible? Are, are, are you praying? Are you engaging with God and seeing Jesus? And are you being met by God in your times with Him? Are you confessing sin, like actually confessing sin? Are you actually granting forgiveness or harboring bitterness? Are the fruits of the Spirit actually evident in your life, majoring on the majors in your walk with Jesus? So what's going to keep us in the long game. See, these normal questions would be a good indicator of where your heart actually is. Don't stall out when you walk with Jesus. Don't settle for check them. Pursue. Keep going in confident obedience that Jesus is for you. Go to where God is calling you. Maybe you're here and you're feeling incredibly burdened and maybe even this last number of minutes have been anxiety-producing for you. Maybe you do have a relationship that's unreconciled. Maybe you do have something in your life that you're like, this is crushing my soul, my fears, and my anxieties are overwhelming me. Maybe it's the stuff going on around the world. Who knows what's going on in your life, but God does. As I've been preparing and praying over this past week for this sermon, um, there's an old hymn that uh, we actually sang it those family reunions that I went to at those small little churches out in the country. And um, it's a hymn that was written in the, the 70s uh, by the Gaithers. And I don't know what you feel about the Gaithers, but these words have been in my mind all week. I can't get them out of my head. So I'm going to leave you with these words of resurrection hope. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth living just because he lives. Church, your God lives. Jesus lives. Because he walked out of that tomb, you can have hope for God dealing with your anxiety. You can have hope for God dealing with your hopeless situation. You can have hope that Christ is with you wherever you're at in life because he lives. Pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for revealing yourself through your word. Thank you for showing us again the beauties of the gospel. Thank you again for being not just our king, but our savior. The one who would sacrifice and die for us, living the perfect life in our place and dying the death that we deserve for our sin. Thank you for all this, Jesus. Thank you for calling us into new life by the power of your Spirit, allowing us to live with joy, live with a bold confidence that you are for us, that you are our God. May we live in confidence that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>